Well, go ahead and grab a seat. It is wonderful to be with you today, worshiping the Lord. My name's Mike, one of the pastors on the team, and I would love to invite you to grab your notes out of your handout. We are continuing through this series called The Ride of Your Life. It's been an incredible honor to be able to, to share with you during this series uh, some lessons that I believe God taught me as I was teaching my son how to ride a bike. And, and in the years since then, I've realized these are really universal lessons. They keep coming up again and again and again. The challenge I find is that we learn them, relearn them. And uh, so just by way of review, um, the first lesson was no fear. And how come you don't have anything to fear? It's because your Father is with you. Your Heavenly Father is right next to you, never going to leave you, never going to forsake you. He's holding you, carrying you, guiding you. Lesson number two was balance. How do you balance? You pedal. And the challenge was to generate momentum in order to balance the things that God's calling us to balance in our life. The third lesson was steering. Where you look, you go. And the challenge for us was to steer our lives into a magnificent story. And the fourth lesson is what we're talking about today. And that lesson is breaking. How to slow, when to stop. I will tell you this. We've had a lot of great feedback on the series so far and on the book. Um, but if you happen to not like this series, good news. Next week's the last lesson. And then we'll be done. So uh, very excited about wrapping that thing up next week. Love to have you come back for that. Lesson four, though, breaking. And by the time lesson four rolled around, my son Caleb was well on his way to vehicular mastery. And he came out full of confidence, threw his leg on his seat. Uh, I helped him get going around the yard. And um, then I said, buddy, are you ready for lesson four? He's like, I'm way ready, dad. Lesson four is breaking. He goes, wait, wait, dad, I already know how to break. Watch. And as he was pedaling, he slammed on the brakes, stopped on a dime and fell right over. And so I helped him get back onto his bike and I actually took my feet and I, I, I pressed them gently toward the brake and I said, buddy, listen, there are some times when you're gonna wanna slam on your brake, times when a mailbox jumps out in front of your path or a parked car leaps in front of where you're going. But I said, occasionally the, the slamming on the brakes works, but most of the time the challenge is to slow down, to apply the brakes gently. And what you need to know as you're doing this, it's really simple, I want you to get your mind around this, it's that you have to push against the way you were pushing. You have to pedal against the way you were pedaling. And so I, I, I wanted to help him understand what this is like, and, and, and I want to help you understand what this is like. I know that it sounds a little insane, but half of mastering a thing is learning to go, and the other half is learning how to stop going. This is why cars come with a gas pedal and a brake pedal. I want you to think about downhill skiing for a moment. Have you ever seen a beginner on the slopes take out an entire ski lift line? Trust me when I say this, that if you know scattering poles and skis and causing concussions is your go-to way of stopping, it's a sure sign you're not ready for the black diamond runs, okay? And so mastery will involve breaking. And, and when it comes to the new adventure, the new skill, the new direction that God is calling you to explore, you have to realize you, you need to break on some of the things that you've already worked to get in motion. Why? Because you've got to create this space in your life to steer toward the new adventure. 
In order to do that, you have to say no to some of the old. You cannot just continue to add and add and add more and more momentum to your life without stopping and breaking some of the things that you're already doing. So here's something by definition you need to know. By definition, breaking employs friction. Breaking employs friction. And so this brings us to the next fill-in that slowing down creates a little heat. The friction will cause a little heat. That breaking will cause a little heat in your world. It can tend to hurt a little bit. There's a, an area, if you're driving north from Southern California to Washington State, you'll be on Interstate 5, and there's an area called the Grapevine. It's where you descend uh, over a thousand feet in a very short period of time. And as you drive that stretch going north, you enjoy the delightful aroma of brake pads being ground down to vapor. Very encouraging smell. And what's interesting is, is that that braking causes friction. And this will be true in your life as well. If you choose to apply the brakes anywhere in your world, you can expect it. People will not understand. They'll say things like, but I thought you wanted to do this thing. You were really doing well. Why would you want to give it up? You have worked so hard to make this happen. I don't see why you're trying to hand the baton off now. And I don't know what friction will look like in your world or where it might heat up in your life. It might manifest itself as friction with the status quo in your workplace. It might manifest itself as friction with the normal accepted breakneck speed of family activities. It might cause pain in negative friendships where you evaluate where you spend your time. And that is why the previous lessons are so helpful to live fearlessly and pursue balance and steer well because as a son or daughter of your heavenly father, you have clarity about the abundance of life that Jesus is inviting you into. So this perspective will allow you to graciously walk through the inevitable friction caused by applying the brakes. So I, I want to encourage you and, and then recognize this next truth that slowing down allows us to recognize what we're missing. So we slow down to recognize what we're missing. I love Einstein. He has a way of saying things with great wisdom and clarity. He says, he who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. Pause, break to wonder and stand wrapped in awe. I had the privilege of going to college at Pepperdine University, and Pepperdine has a couple of study abroad programs that I was able to uh, go to, one of which was in England. I was in London, and my buddy Kelly and I, while we were in London, we actually became friends with a gal in the program. Her name was Shanna. Now, Shanna had a dad who was a musician, which is interesting enough if you're in college, but then we found out that her dad was the musician named Van Morrison, rock icon. Raise your hand if you know who Van Morrison is. Yeah, brown-eyed girl. <laughs> Love this guy. So, so found out that her, Shanna's dad was Van Morrison, and, and Kelly was invited once by Shanna to go to a concert with her down in the southwest of England. And so he went down. They had a great time at the concert together. And then after the concert, Kelly was invited with Shanna to go backstage and to meet the band and, and to meet Van Morrison and a bunch of folks that were back there. 
And Kelly was delighted to do this, he told me, but it was getting kind of late. And he was getting a little hungry, and he was starting to get stressed out because he knew that he had to jump on a train to catch it back to London that night, and he knew that the train didn't serve sandwiches, and he really wanted a sandwich, and there were no sandwiches backstage left over, and he wasn't even sure they had a 7-Eleven in England to buy a sandwich, and so he started kind of fixating on his hunger and, and his desire for a sandwich, and he didn't really pay attention to some of the hands that he was shaking backstage. A couple of days later, Shanna was talking to Kelly and, and they were reviewing the events of the concert and how much fun it had been. And, and then Shanna said, and wasn't it great when we were backstage to meet Peter Gabriel and his band? Now, I, I don't know if you know Peter Gabriel. He was really big in the 80s. Peter Gabriel, Say Anything, filmed in Seattle, John Cusack with the boombox in your eyes. No, Babe 2, Pig in the City. Uh, I'm telling you, big, big, big Peter Gabriel. And, and Peter Gabriel was also one of Kelly's favorite musicians, but he was so fixated on a sandwich that he didn't realize he had, sh he had shook Peter Gabriel's hand. Now, this is what Einstein's talking about. If Kelly had paused for a moment, he would have stood wrapped in wonder and awe. But instead, he was living with his eyes closed. Friends, how often do we do that? How often do we just race through our life at this breakneck speed, our mind whirling at a thousand miles an hour over all kinds of things that may or may not have any real weight or value, and we're missing what's right in front of us? Therapists call this mindfulness. And it doesn't mean that your mind is full of all kinds of things. It actually means that your mind is quite clear about where you are and what you're experiencing. You might also call this being present. But if we don't learn how to slow down, how to break our lives, then we're going to miss so much of the blessing that God has for us. And so in order to do this, in order to break, you're going to have to take stock of the various roles that you fill and the various tasks that you perform regularly. You're going to have to evaluate, is what I said yes to in that season still a yes in this season? Because you see, some of the things that are values in one season are no longer priorities in the next. And maybe you're holding on to some endeavors past their usefulness in your life or your usefulness in theirs. It's a little like keeping fish in the refrigerator. While originally delicious, if you hold on too long, everything starts to stink. And I, I would tell you this, that you have just enough time to do the things that God is calling you to do. So if you don't have enough time, it means you're doing things that God's not calling you to do. So we've got to evaluate and we've got to be willing to hit the brakes on some of these things. And I do want to tell you this, that if you and I, if we don't choose to slow down on our own, then something will happen that will force us to slow down. And, and we could all tell stories about something, suddenly you hit a brick wall in, in maybe your career and, and now you're forced to slow down. Some of us with health, you throw your back out, then all of a sudden, oh, I, I've got to be present. I've got to be mindful. I've got to slow down. A buddy of mine, his father-in-law was a workaholic, 
and he, he did really, really well, started his own company, and it grew and grew, and, and his family just wanted his time, but he said, not yet. I'm going to save for retirement. I'm going to retire at 65, and then I'm going to spend all my time with family, all my time traveling with the ones I love the most, and that's basically what he did. He socked millions of dollars away when he was 65. He retired. This was in June. He started traveling the world with his wife and some of his family members. And by December, he was gone. He had stored up all of this life to be lived at a later date. And then it wasn't there for him to live. I want to encourage you, right, that this is something you and I have an opportunity to slow down. In fact, the next fill-in is slow down to enjoy. There is so much abundance and fullness of life that Jesus is inviting us to participate in. We need to slow down and enjoy the blessings that he has for us. And I wonder how much we're missing as we just fly through life. One of my good buddies, Tom, has a house that backs up next to this small, rather charming lake. And this is an internationally acclaimed speaker and trainer. He flies all over the globe. His client roster looks like a list of Forbes 500 companies. And he told me that in the mornings when he's home and not traveling, he tries to eat breakfast looking out his back window at what's going on in the lake. He's seen a bird of prey swoop down and take out a trout. He's seen an otter slip across the surface of the ice on a cold winter's day. He's seen four stags swimming across with their antlers held high, like a grove of young saplings moving steadfastly across the water. Now, this is an important guy. He's got important things to do, heads of state to mentor, CEOs to comfort, that kind of a thing. But I'm telling you, most mornings, he just sits, enjoys breakfast, and gazes out his back porch. I'm also arguing that he would have missed so many blessings and so much beauty had he not made the commitment to slow down. See, I wonder how often God is quietly gifting us with beauty, gifting us with blessings from his open hand. We are running too fast through life, and we don't see it. Psalm 19, one through four says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. It's actually speaking. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And the question is, are we missing? Are we missing it? I'm going to give you a little homework assignment this week, friends, and this is, you might want to write it down, Psalm 104. And I want to challenge you in the course of the next seven days to break and, and slow down enough where you can read Psalm 104, where you can meditate on all of the beauty and all the blessings that God has poured out through creation, and just give him thanks and praise for the blessings that he's given us. God so often meets us in solitude, in silence. He meets me uh, when I take a hiatus from the forced ebb and flow of technology. The Spirit meets me when I slow down. When I was growing up, my dad had a saying, and he would say this at dinner time: "Take all you want, but eat all you take." 
And what he was really saying was that my hunger determines the portion on my plate. I wonder if this is not true for us spiritually. That we come to God with our bowl and he's there with a ladle and he is ready to, to give us just all kinds of blessing, all kinds of provision, all kinds of beauty and, and reminders of his majesty. What he's serving, God is, is he's serving intimacy with himself. But friends, how hungry you are determines the size of your portion. How, how hungry you are determines how much you get to feast with the Lord. And this is what the psalm says in Psalm 34 when it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. How hungry you are determines the size of your portion. Or in Exodus 40, verse 38, we read about the tangible presence of the Lord with the nation of Israel. That during the day, he is with them as a pillar of cloud. During the night, as a pillar of fire. That he is tangibly present with them. That he's guiding them through their journeys. It says this, For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. I would love for you to underline those last few words. Throughout all their journeys, that's what I long for. That throughout all my journeys, that, that, that I am so hungry for the presence of the Lord that it's as if he's with me tangibly. That I can see him and, and taste him and sense him. And that he, I, I'm ready and responsive to follow him as he leads me on my journey. And in the, the scriptures, we are invited, the people of God are invited by God again and again to practice slowing and breaking so that we can have intimacy with him. And so I, I want to talk about four ways in scripture, four biblical ways that God invites us to slow and, and to break. And if you're filling in the blanks, the first one, it's a very small uh, concept, it's called sila. So in the scriptures, we see this word again and again and again. It shows up in one book more than any other. Do you guys know what the book is that it shows up in? Psalms. That's right. It shows up in the Psalms. And it really is almost like a musical term communicating to the singers of the Psalms that they are to take a break, that they are to breathe in, that that is to be a rest moment. In fact, it's what makes rhythm possible. If you know about musical theory, you know that what makes rhythm possible is the concept of rest. Without rest, it's just a monotone blaring. But with rest, suddenly now you have rhythm, and it's what makes music beautiful. What sila means, the actual definition, is the pause that refreshes. That's also a Coke slogan. I had no idea Coca-Cola was so biblical, right? So the challenge is, what does it look like for you and I to build sila into your daily life? That you would take pause, that you, that you would build just, just a moment of breathing deep, being mindful and present, of leaning into your relationship with the Lord. Just sila, just moments. The next fill-in is Sabbath. And of course, this is the very first place in Scripture that we see God's heart for rest. The concept of Sabbath is built right into the creation in Genesis itself. And the Lord causes us to purpose one day out of seven to rest, 
to lean into him through worship and drawing strength and restoration from our intimacy with him. And we honor the Lord when we do this, but we also see that our soul is restored and replenished. And in Exodus 20, verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so again, that's a challenge for us, that we would actually take a whole day, that we would set it aside for worship and for rest. My buddy Scott Dudley, pastor at Bellevue Presbyterian Church, he says, Sabbath means that success is not up to my anxious toil. That the universe is not, in fact, on my shoulders. It's not on your shoulders. That there actually is space for us to lay down our burden of labor and to just rest, trusting that God is God, that God will be God in our life, in our world. Psalm 4610 says, be still and know that I am God. What I would love to have you do is draw a little arrow both ways between the words still and know. A little both ways. It's reflexive. I'm convinced that there is a connection between the stillness and the knowing. And that if I'm never still, then I won't know. And then if I want to know, then I will be still. Sabbath. The next fill-in is Sabbath year. And we read about this interesting concept that God architected for his people, Israel. You can read about it in Exodus 23, 10 and 11, or Leviticus 25, 1 through 7. It's called Sabbath year. And in an agrarian society of Israel, they were to give the land a break every seven years. It was to lie fallow, unused, so that it would have nutrition and vitality restored. But friends, this is a powerful lesson for us as well, and I'm not entirely sure how to make this practical in our own lives. Because I know that the the moment that you heard the word Sabbath year, you thought to yourself, well, how in the world would I take a whole year off every seven years? That doesn't make any sense. Our practical minds don't leave much room for this possibility. And, and I do think it's interesting to note that's exactly the same response that ancient Israel had. They were farmers living in an agrarian society. They ate what they farmed. And here's God saying, you're to take every seven years and not farm. And they're thinking, God, if we don't farm, we don't eat. What's going to happen? And so it's really interesting to me to see what God answers them in Leviticus 18, verse 20 and following. This is the Lord speaking. He says, you may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. Do you see that blessing that God builds into this obedience? He's saying, look, if you obey me in this, I will bless you so abundantly in year six that you'll be eating from it for the next three years. There's an incredible amount of blessing associated with God's promise in this. And again, I don't know what that looks like practically. We'll talk about this in a moment. But it's a challenge for us to recognize God is God. Be still and know. And then the last one, of course, is the big one. It is Jubilee. The year of Jubilee. You can read about it in Leviticus 25, 8 through 17. And this happens every seven Sabbath year. 
So on the day of atonement in the 50th year, God instructed his people to blow the ram's horn throughout the land, to cancel all of the debts, to return all real estate to the original tribal owners, and to grant liberty and blessing to every slave. And I get chills when I think about this because it is not only a picture of God's restorative grace, I think it's the first glimpse we get into what heaven looks like. It is, it is a glimpse after the fall of the revitalization of Eden. Unfortunately, we don't have any biblical indication that Israel ever celebrated Jubilee even one time. So you could see what a stretch this was for his people to receive this. But you can also see how incredibly thoughtful God is to weave rest into the very fabric of the life that he desires for his people. He wants us to break. And so the question is, and I would ask you to make this personal, what does it look like for you to build sila into your daily life? What needs to change for you to build Sabbath into your weekly life? Sabbath, by the way, I think worshiping corporately is absolutely a part of Sabbath. But what does it look like then for you to, to build a whole day towards rest and worship? Sabbath year, what could this look like for you? For some of you, it might look like you press hard into building your business for seven years. But in the seventh year, you, you just receive. And you just enjoy, and you allow that to be a, a year where you build back into your family, back into your relationships. Maybe for some of you in your family life, you, you work hard for seven years, and, and you're running with the chaos and the pace of family for six years, but in that seventh year, you just wind it down. In our life, we had three kiddos. They all play sports. We, we limit it to one sport per season. But maybe in that seventh year, you just limit it to one activity for that year. You just, you just tone it down a notch and you remove some chaos. Again, I don't know. Shoot me an email. Let me know what you think. What does Jubilee look like? Maybe when you're 50 years old. Maybe when you, you've been married for 50 years. I, I, I don't know. I, I think I want to encourage you to go big with Jubilee. That you just go nuts. That you be wild and gracious and generous. And, and, and you just maybe you pay a single mom's house off. Maybe you just find 50 people that you can bless and it's totally unlooked for and they're absolutely wowed by it. I don't know. All I want to do is encourage you to go so big with your jubilee that people are talking about it for the next 50 years. Get your jubilee on, Overlake. <laughs> Trademark, Mike Howerton. So we need to explore God's rhythms for breaking and, and the, the, the answer to the question why it's because that's where your best life, your best ministry, your best relationships, they will all flow out of intimacy with Jesus. But it's in rest that we experience that intimacy with the Lord. We need to practice slowing down and enjoying how he is meeting us and how he is blessing us. Another quote, sometimes you need to press pause to let everything sink in. Now, I want to tell you, when I was teaching my son Caleb to ride his bike, how we did it, the, the format was really simple. We practiced for 20 minutes, and then we parked the bike. We went inside for a cold glass of comfort. In his world, that was lemonade. And what was interesting as I was processing, that strategic break every day with Caleb was pure gold. 
Because what it allowed for him to do was at the end of that 20-minute stretch, we'd park the bike, he would be victorious. He would run inside after mastering just one lesson, and he would be celebratory, telling his mom, 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 today this is what I learned. And then we would have that time together enjoying lemonade as champions. And it wasn't so much that that was quality time together, not unless you count Star Wars role play or sound effects as quality time. Uh, That's where he was at that point. But I do want you to understand that it, there, was some, there was some power there for Caleb to master one baby step at a time. And I mention this because I think that that's not too far off from how you and I tend to live. We do really well with smaller lessons easily mastered that we can build upon past success for future endeavor. And so often what happens, even in our world, is that we are overwhelmed with a barrage of good coaching. We need to recognize, even with our own children perhaps, that the brain dump rarely works for them. So uh, let me just give you an example. If you've ever gone golfing with a golf pro who offered to give you a few tips, then you know exactly what feeling overwhelmed is like. Suddenly, you you thought you were enjoying kind of an outing where you, you know, fruitlessly hack at a white ball, but instead, you realize that you need to watch your backswing and lock your elbow and check your grip and your stance is wonky and you got to relax your facial muscles and you need to wear plaid knickers and you have to be the ball and all of a sudden, you're just overwhelmed. You, You think about the goal and you realize that there are 177 things that you've got to master simultaneously And what you really want to do is jump back on the couch and grab the cheese puffs. And that's what happens again and again in our life, whereas you need to recognize what God does with us. God coaches us in baby steps. God will focus on one issue of our life, one character trait that he's seeking to develop. And he'll work with us gently and graciously until we master that. And then we'll use that to help us go after the next thing. Maybe there's one area in in your life that God is working on you to bring freedom. And so you walk with him gently and graciously as he brings freedom in that area, and then the freedom there will cause you to be willing to tackle the next thing, go after freedom somewhere else. See, God loves us. The, The process that he coaches us in baby steps through, it's the biblical word sanctification. Now, I wish that God would, would just sanctify me, perfect me in an instant. And I know he can. I know he has that power. But rather, what he chooses to do is he chooses to work with me, drawing me closer to himself as I rely on him for the next lesson. Okay, this is the process that he walks us through. And I I just want to nail this point home, that God is the one who came up with the idea of work and rest as partners. He's the one who came up with the idea of striving and celebration as partners. Produce, then lie fallow. Rest is actually a part of the learning, growing, and strengthening process. This is not my idea. This is God's idea. In fact, I I want you to picture lifting some weights. I do this often. It's so much nicer than actually lifting weights. (laughs) So you imagine what happens when you lift weights. When you lift weights, tiny tears appear in your muscle fabric. Even the the most rigorous uh, workout program 
will request that you work out no more than uh, every other day, right? That you, or that you rotate the muscles that you're working out. Why? Because when you put those tears in your muscle, they need time to heal. So you rest. So you intentionally build in rest in your life for the restoration to happen. What happens? You're actually stronger on the back end. I would suggest something else. It's not just what happens in your muscle tissue. It's actually what happens in your mind. That now you're able to conceptualize, oh, this is how I accomplished that lift. This is how I accomplished that exercise. And it's in rest that your mind actually gets around that thing. So the next time you're after it, you're stronger. In fact, I would have you fill this in because I see this again and again. The challenge is for us to slow down to listen. To listen, and, and I mean by listening something a little broader than just hearing with your ear. I mean listening to what's really going on, to what's really being taught, or what's really being spoken. I experienced this phenomenon most while I was 16 years old learning how to drive my car and it was so powerful of a lesson that I've never forgotten and I've seen it come up again and again and again in my life. By the way, when I was 16, I, um, my father and I had purchased a 1966 Ford Mustang for $500 and we fixed that car up together. And I remember sitting inside that car in my driveway. And I loved everything about that car, by the way. I loved how it looked, I loved how it sounded, I loved how it smelled, uh, which I believe was like a mixture of leaded gasoline and undiluted testosterone. And, and I would sit in that car for hours and I would go through bottle after bottle of Armor All and I would just like rub down the inside, all the leather, I just was, so, I'd buff it and polish it. It was so smooth and so silky, I envisioned if a fly buzzed over and landed on it, he would slip and fall on the surface of that car. It was so lovingly cared for. And you may wonder, why were you just sitting and, and buffing this car? It, because I didn't have my license, because I had failed my driver's test. This still comes up in therapy. Does anyone else uh, fail their driver's test the first time? Anyone? God bless you. I see that hand. God bless you. God bless you. I see that. God bless you. Friends, these are the people that you want to uh, drive away from today. I'm just kidding. Um, but... Uh, but, but, but I didn't have my license, so I couldn't drive. And, and then the second thing, which was equally true and daunting, I didn't know how to drive a stick. And so I asked my dad in that season, Dad, could you teach me how to drive a stick? And he said, sure. So we would go out, and, and he was pretty good at, at the instruction. He would actually model for me what we were doing. And as he would model driving a stick shift, he would talk me through verbally. You know, you depress the clutch, and you shift the gear, and then you engage the gas, letting off the clutch. And he, he would just kind of talk me through all this verbally while I was sitting there watching and observing. And then he'd give me a chance to do it, and of course, I would buck and rev and grind and suddenly shoot out in the middle of an intersection. And my dad is just so thankful that he didn't have a heart attack in that season. But I remember after our third lesson, fruitless lesson, my dad actually had driven us home. He parked the car and, and I went in the, the house and I laid down on my bed and I just started thinking about what was going on. I just kind of pictured it. 
in my room, on my bed, completely away from the car I was anxious to drive, suddenly it just clicked. I could envision the timing of how things needed to work. I, I, I was listening finally to the instruction that he was giving, and it made sense to me. But not only that, I was, I was listening to how my body could engage in that moment, and, and suddenly I was like, I, I think I got it. And the very next time I jumped behind the wheel, I was the man. Now, I want to tell you, I, I call this the other half of prayer. See, the first half of prayer is where you tell God what you need. You tell God what you're, what you're desiring or what you're confessing. You tell God how awesome he is. You lift up your family and your needs before the Lord. You, you, this is all beautiful, right? The, the, the idea, the first half of prayer, it's what we're really good at. We communicate our heart to God. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But there's this other half of prayer where you ask God, God, what do you want to say to me? And friends, he will only answer that prayer in stillness. He answers that prayer in quiet, in break. And over the course of my lifetime, in fact, I want to tell you, in the last 23 years of ministry, I have seen him answer prayer for me in stillness again and again and again. It's where I'll be stewing on some issue in the evening, and I'll be just dwelling on it before I fall asleep. And when I wake up in the morning, it's as if he has met me with clarity and an answer where I'll be pouring out my heart to God for some solution and then I'll, I'll just stop and I'll take a run and it's on that run. It's when I'm just disengaged and just enjoying, suddenly, boom, he's there showing me the steps ahead. You know, for some of you, it might be you're at a, a business brainstorm meeting and you're trying to make the whiteboard look good or you're trying to pour creativity out, but you're just hitting that glass ceiling again and again. And it's when you get in the car and you're driving home listening to piano music that suddenly, boom, you know how you need to proceed. The other half of prayer is where you listen to what it is that God is trying to encourage you to pursue. Charles Stanley says this, to have God speak to the heart is a majestic experience, an experience that many people may miss if they monopolize the conversation and never pause to hear God's responses. So friends, I encourage you to do the possible and trust that God will carry the universe on his shoulders. I encourage you to strive hard, but then take a break. Do what you can and then rest that, that the pause really does matter. The breaking really does matter. It, it's what you do to contend for intimacy in your relationship with God. So fight for it. Take that break. Restructure your schedule. Repurpose your commute. Turn your thoughts into prayers. And out of intimacy with the Lord will come your authority and your impact in this world. In fact, friends, I just want to say this very clearly. It's out of our intimacy with Jesus that our best life and ministry and relationships flow. So intimacy, that's what we fight for. All right, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And 
Let's pray now for these things. As we begin to pray, I want to ask you rhetorically, what is God stirring you to cut out of your life? How is God prompting you to slow down? How does he want you to enjoy more of his blessing? What does he want to say to you today? Jesus, we confess that this is a noisy, busy, frantic world. We ask that you would allow us in this season that we would listen as much as we speak, that we, that we would lean in and pursue intimacy with you, that we would be hungry to know you and know your guidance and know your blessing. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that this idea of taking a break, the idea of slowing our lives, that this is not some kind of a self-help thing, but rather this is biblical. This is what you built in for your people to pursue. So we ask right now that you would give us both the wisdom and the courage to know how to pursue it. We want to lean into intimacy with you. We, we want to be hungry so that our portion of you might be great. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray all these things in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.